Amen. Good morning. Thank you. Okay. I'm like, literally, no one said good morning. <laughs> hey, if you're visiting with us this morning, let me just say to you, uh, we're so grateful that you're with us as our guest, or if you're watching online for the first time, thank you for joining us. We would love to know who you are. Um, if you're with us on campus, you can stop by one of the welcome areas on your way off campus this morning, or uh, you can text the word connect uh, to the number that you see on the screen, and one of our uh, connect team members will follow up with you uh, this week. Uh, I also want to invite you uh, as a church back uh, next Sunday evening uh, to our town hall and prayer night. Uh, if you came to vision night back in February, you kind of heard the 30,000 foot view of things that God is doing in our church and things we're planning uh, to do for uh, his kingdom. Uh, this is where we get into the weeds a little bit more. So we'll observe the Lord's Supper and then each of our trustees uh, will share a little bit about their ministry area. You have the opportunity to ask questions about the things we're doing and uh, certainly would uh, love for you to be there and just understand what we're doing and maybe have the opportunity to ask questions that you might have. We'll go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter four. We're gonna begin in verse 21 this morning. And this is our last uh, part of talking about the promise of the gospel as we head into Galatians chapter five next week, Paul really begins to kind of turn a corner in the way he's talking and begin to talk about um, the application of uh, the fruit of the gospel in our life. Um, but I think as we kind of put a, a bow on this part of Galatians, I think I need to address a tension um, that exists, I believe, for some of you, um, but certainly for many of you in your relationships with other Christians. We've been talking about being centered around the gospel. We, we firmly believe that the focus of every time we gather, really every time we open the word and the focus of our life needs to be on what Christ has done for us in giving his life on the cross, what he's demonstrated in the resurrection and the fact that he's ascended to the throne and the place, the position that gives us. And yet I think other Christians um, tend to think, hey, we need to focus more on the blessings that come from God and, and maybe experiencing more from God. And so there begins to be a de-emphasis of the gospel. Um, in fact, I was listening to a teacher who I would label as a false teacher that past week, and he, he was actually critical of uh, churches like ours for placing such an emphasis on the atonement, on the work of Christ. And so certainly, I hear Christians kind of say, we need to talk about more about blessing. And, and, and sometimes what they do is they seem to think that, and maybe we even think this, that being gospel-centered and being blessed by God are disconnected, are at odds with one another. And what, what I want you to see is, in fact, it's the very opposite. That being gospel-centered is very connected to experiencing the blessings that come from God and seeing God at work in your life in this world. And so um, Paul is going to dig deep here in Galatians chapter four. He's gonna lead us to dig deep. But I assure you that if you stay with me, it's worth it. Those of you who know me have heard me talk about my coming to Christ in this way before. Um, you see, I grew up in a home where we didn't go to church. I remember going to vacation Bible school once. I remember going uh, to the church that was about a half a mile uh, down the street from my house and um, playing basketball and then giving the Bible study leader a really hard time, like asking him really stupid, obnoxious questions. 
And that's about all I remember about church other than having church friends until I was 14 and I gave my life to Christ. Um, but my parents still weren't Christians or weren't practicing their faith and didn't want to go to church. And so, uh, you know, I, I believed in Jesus, but I didn't really get to do much with that. And then going into my senior year of high school, my stepdad uh, gave his life to Christ watching a televangelist. So there is one person who has actually been reached uh, by a televangelist. And so we started going to church, Baptist church. We got baptized. Um, and then I really struggled to fit in. And I've likened it to now, um, if you were a 90s kid and you didn't go to church, there was a distinction between you and the kids that did go to church, and that was that you got to watch The Simpsons. And there was this episode of The Simpsons where Bart Simpson is trying to be a Flanders kid. The Flanders were these religious goody two-shoe neighbors. Uh, and so he was trying to kind of be that, and then he realizes, that's not me. I'm not a Flanders. I can never be that. I'm a Simpson. And so that's kind of how, if I look back on that season of my life, trying to plug into the church, even feeling a call to ministry, how I felt is I'll never be them. I'll never be these church people. I'll never be the Flanders. I'm just a Simpson. We're, my family's different. I'm, I'm different. And, and some of that was on me because for the first time in my life, I was being exposed to the word of God and, and the teaching of the word of God. And I saw that I fell short, fell short and yet I want to be as good as everybody else. And so I was confronted with that. And so I tended to tended to just kind of say, well, I kind of give up on that. That's not who I am. And, so, and some of that was on the church. I mean, there were people there who, who definitely seemed to emphasize doing church things and religion and kind of looking down upon those in the culture who didn't do those things. And no doubt there is a misunderstanding about this and about what it means to keep the rules as a Christian. Something I've already said during the series, I wanna say this again, is that obedience doesn't lead to salvation. Salvation leads to obedience. You see, keeping the rules doesn't save us because none of us can actually keep all the rules. But being saved by God leads us to want to trust him and keep his rules. You see the difference there? But there are always those, maybe even in this church, who want to emphasize works as necessary for salvation. And in Galatia, false teachers had come into the church saying, believe and then obey, and as a result of your belief and your obedience, you will be saved. Because as we discussed, there's this tension between the gospel and the fruit of the gospel. The fact that I'm saved, and yet the Bible says there should be this work that is taking place in my life. And so it becomes easier to say that standards like going to a church building three times a week or not sitting in the bar area at Chili's or only listening to K-Love or not watching The Simpsons saves you instead of grace. But we pick up where we left off two weeks ago. Galatians chapter four, verse 21. It says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now, when Paul uses this phrase, under the law, he's talking about those who would see the law as a means of justification. I will obey the law, and my obedience to the law gives me right standing before God. God will accept me, God will approve of me, and God will bless me because I'm doing these things. That's being under the law. 
And Paul has already said, that's demonic. Paul has already said, that is foolishness. And Paul uses something this crowd will be deeply connected to as an illustration to drive home his point. Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Abraham, of course, was the biological father of the nation of Israel. But when we first meet Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he's a childless old man in his 80s, married to a sterile old woman in her 70s. If we look at Genesis chapter 15, then we're reminded of what happens to Abraham and Sarah. Abraham is downcast because he and Sarah have no children, no heir to fulfill the promises of becoming a great nation that God had said in chapter 12. He only has Eleazar, the slave. But God says in verse four, this man shall not be your heir. Your own son shall be your heir. God's intention was to give Abraham a son and an heir when it looked humanly impossible so that Abraham would have to fully rely on God. So at 90 years old, God says to Abraham, I will give you an offspring. Over time, no child comes. So Sarah decides to take things into her own hand to fulfill the promise of God. Sarah brings in her servant, Hagar, for Abraham to sleep with. Abraham says, if you insist, that's another sermon. And then they have Ishmael. Now Paul explains here, verse 23, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Paul says, the point of what happened in Abraham and Sarah wasn't to explain the issue in Galatia, but it can be used to explain the issue. It can be used allegorically. Now, not all the stories of the Bible are allegory. People say, David and Goliath, who's your Goliath? Probably nobody. It's not the other team that's better than you. That's not how it works. Look at the story of Noah. What's your boat you need to build? What's your flood? You probably don't have one. And if there is allegory in the story of David and Noah, the hero is not me and you. It's Jesus. Jesus has defeated the giant of death. Jesus has provided a way out of the judgment of God. So we need to be careful here when we read the Bible and we try to apply it in this way. Now, when do we know if the Bible can be interpreted allegorically? Well, I will tell you when we definitely know, when the Bible says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. <laughs> I don't think Paul would say that the original meaning of Genesis had reference to Mount Sinai or Jerusalem. I think he would say that the truth implied in the stories about Hagar and Sarah is the same truth that we can now see in what happened at Mount Sinai and continues to happen in the present Jerusalem. So it is fully legitimate to use those stories from Genesis to symbolize and illustrate these later events. Paul says, according to verse 24, Hagar and Sarah represent two covenants. First, he focuses on Hagar and says, one covenant is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar, verse 25. 
Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, whoa, you need to pay attention to what's being said here. Because the Israelites, who are relying on the law, who are saying, hey, all these Gentiles need to get circumcised just like us, because that's what the people of God do, thought of Sarah as their mother, not Hagar. What Paul is saying is offensive. And so the key question here is how is Hagar and her sleeping with Abraham and their son Ishmael like the covenant of Mount Sinai, the giving of the law through Moses? Sarah and Abraham did not wait on God to fulfill his promise. They saw fit to fulfill his promise in their own way. Understand this, the promise of God and the promise of the gospel is that God will do the work. The promise is that God will do the work. And we are called to place our faith in him. We are called to trust in him and that he keeps his promises. Yet because we have a longing to be blessed, because we have a longing to be justified and therefore feel justified, there is a temptation to create our own definitions and our own standards of fruit or blessing or fulfillment. And we become slaves to our way. Reliance on self-created standards of blessing enslaves you. Reliance on self-created standards of blessing enslaves you because they don't bring the things of God. And there are consequences of not living for God. And if we've started to live for our own standards and our own definitions and in our own way to bring about what we think God ought to give us, we are no longer trusting in God. And there are consequences of that. And this is where some of you are today. And you're responding to this in one of two ways, either like the Flanders, who said, we, we gotta keep up the standard, we gotta fit in with the Flanders, I gotta be like this. And so there's this pressure to be this thing that you're really not. Or you're like, I'm just a Simpson, so I'm not gonna try. You know, like me, I was kind of thinking, look, all right, fine, we won't have mansions in heaven like them, but God will let us into the trailer park, certainly, because he loves us. And so we drift either into legalism or we drift into liberalism. And it's enslaving. And this is what reliance of the law for righteousness is like. Verse 26 says, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. God's promise has to come from above. It has to come from him. It has to be fulfilled by God. The promise of the gospel comes from God. Being faithful is waiting on him to come through because he promised he would. I'll give you this definition of what it means to be faithful. Faithfulness is doing what you know 
God has called you to do and waiting on God to do what he has promised he will do. That's faithfulness. It's doing what God has called you to do and trusting in him. And there's an active part of this and an inactive part of this. It's obedience to God and it's patience. Look, I know you have desires and they might not be bad desires. And it's not easy when you're hurting. And I know that you want answers. But the faith God is calling us to sometimes only has him and his promises for us to cling to. And it leaves us saying, how can it be possible that I would stay here and be faithful to you and I see all these things happening around me and yet you're gonna, this is gonna happen. You've promised this. How can this be possible? And that's the very point. That's the very point. Look at verse 27. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. This is taken from Isaiah chapter 54. When the prophet Isaiah, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel as they are in exile. They know the promises of God and yet they look around us and they see those who are evil prospering while they are not prospering and God's promise here is indeed that he will come through for them. Look what Paul says in verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Paul now turns his attention to the Christians and he reminds them, you are children of of promise. A good parent is going to give a lot of good things to their children. Not because of their production, but because of their position. And not, listen to me, not because of their potential, but because of their position. Our position with God isn't based on potential. It is based on his promise. Our position with God isn't based on potential. It is based on his promise. God does not bless us because of what we produce for him or because of what we might produce for him. God blesses us because we are his son and his daughter. Because of our position and what God has promised to those that are his. You see, I think a misunderstanding of this has messed up a lot of marriages. We don't love our spouse based on the potential of what we think they might be. See, a lot of us get married having this vision for what our married life will be and how our spouse might fit that. And when they don't meet that, we don't love them. That's not godly, Christ-centered love. It's loving them for who they are. Doesn't mean we don't want things to change, but we love them based on the fact that they are our spouse. With our children, 
I do not love my children based on the potential of what they may become or what they are right now. I love them because they're my son and they're my daughter. And some of us have a a hard time understanding this when it comes to our relationship with God. Listen, and this is infiltrated into Christian talk where you become a Christian and then all of the sermons and all of the Bible study and we read the Bible through the filter of what we might be and what we might produce. Listen, if you produce none of that, God loves you just the same. Your destiny is him. Your potential is that you get to be with your father in his glory for all of eternity. And it's not about how good of a grip you have on God, but God says nothing will take you out of my grip. That's the good news, that's the promise of God, that's our security. Now listen, what's going to happen is those who don't have that kind of security will try to rob us of this joy. Look at verse 29. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. He's referencing the persecution of Isaac because of Ishmael. And he says, you will be persecuted by those who rely on the law and obey it, or those who don't obey the law. As children of the promise, you will be persecuted by those who don't understand that, who are relying on the law, and they're thinking, why aren't you doing all the things that we're doing? And those who don't rely on the law and who are saying, or who, who, who run away from the law, and who are saying, why do you do those things? You don't have to do those things. This is why you need to know scripture. This is why you need to be rooted in the promise, centered around the gospel. Verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And we're getting, not getting into the morality of Hagar and Sarah. Sarah and Abraham had issues. That's not the point here. The way that the two came about here is the point. The point is God's promise. The point is that God keeps his promises. God fulfills his promises. God delivers. That's the point. And so, so now I wanna ask three questions. Three questions for reflection. The first is this. Are we more interested in what God might be able to give us than we are in God giving us himself? It's okay to have the desires or some of the desires that you have. It's okay to want to provide for your family. I mean, it's okay to want to be as wealthy as you can be with the right heart. It's okay to want to be healthy. It's okay that you have a longing for relationships, whether that's marriage or children or friendships. It's, it's even okay to want influence and status with the right mentality. It's not okay to see religion simply as a means to those things for yourself. It's not okay that God becomes a servant to you and your will 
instead of us becoming servants to him and his will. And when we use religion and we use God for these things, that's how we drift away from the gospel or perhaps have never really been grasped by the gospel. Some of you are here. It's about you. It's about your life. It's about what you want. And you're using religion. You're using God to give you those things. Perhaps you couldn't find it anywhere else, and so being a good churchman or churchwoman is what gives you that status, that recognition, what feeds your ego. Perhaps you use a little bit of religion and godliness to justify ungodliness in every other area of your life. And you've never come to this place where you realized, I was created by a holy God who has a purpose for my life. And it starts with him and not me. And maybe when you're honest, you find yourself in this place of realization that you have walked away from God. You have ignored God. And you need salvation. That's the message of the cross. That salvation is here for you. And I pray this morning that you would confess your sins to Christ. Understand that he was given as a means of righteousness for you and place your trust in him. The second question is, do we trust in ourselves more than we trust in the promise and power of God? So to those of you who, who do follow Jesus, who he is the center of your life. Functionally, do you actually trust in yourself more than you trust in the power and the promise of God? Because we want to see blessing in our life. And I've been showing this visual over and over again during the series, and we'll put that on the screen again, because I think this is what happens we want to be blessed. We want to mature. We want to grow. We want to get better. Whatever way you articulate that. And so it's a work of Christ, a work of the gospel. It's, it's hard. It's sifting of our heart to really let the gospel do that. And so what we say is, but if I can be a part of the church that has these traditions, then I can be blessed. If I can keep this moral code, then I can be blessed. If I can be spiritual and have these experiences with God, there's what I need. If I can learn a lot about God and be able to make myself feel good about what I can articulate about theology, then I'm mature. If I keep these rituals, that's what makes me blessed by God. If I'm progressive, look, look where I am. I'm, I'm, I'm moving, I'm evolving with the spirit and the culture and so now I feel good about where I am with God. Or look at how pragmatic I am. I, I can memorize every seven-step series our pastor does. And look at these books I've, I've mastered and I've been certified in. Or, or I'm happy and nobody can take away my happiness. And that's what our blessing is tied to. And what happens here 
and I'm just convinced of this, is that much of the modern talk that's coming from pulpits and coming from Bible studies and coming from us is because we're really insecure. Because we're not really seeing the gospel do the work in our hearts that it says it will do, and so we begin to redefine it. And then we begin to look down upon people who don't redefine it the same way as we do it. And what we're really doing is we're trusting in ourselves for the promises of God, for the definition of maturity and the definition of blessing. And this leads me to my last question where I, I wanna hang out for a few minutes. Do we think that we need to have it all together for God to bless us? Or do we realize God's blessing is for those who do not have it all together? I'll, I'll ask that again. Do we think we need to have it all together for God to bless us? Or do we realize God's blessing is for those who do not have it all together? From Genesis to Revelation, the beginning to the end of the story of humanity, from what God has told us, the very promise of the gospel is that when we realize we can't keep the rules, we can't meet the standard, we are not good enough, and we need salvation, God has promised to give it to us. And he has revealed that clearly in Christ. And so God's promise to work in our life is attached to that. So whenever my children were younger, one of them told me that they felt called to be a pastor. And they were very young, so they couldn't even discern that at that point. But I'm a young dad, and this kid tells me this, and immediately what I'm thinking about is reality. That this kid, honestly, wasn't very social. He didn't really like to talk to people who weren't his family. Um, that might be a problem. Um, whenever the kids would go on stage in kids' church or you know, do something, he, he didn't wanna do it. And I mean, there was this joy that he had about God, but it was kind of like, in his own world, I remember going into children's church one day and seeing all the kids and they're all kind of singing songs and he was like in the corner singing his favorite song at that time, which is my God is so big, you know, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. And I'm like, that's cool, but no one else is singing that song right now. <laughs> and what I was thinking, I'm just being honest with you, is you're not gonna be a pastor And then it hit me. Who do I think I am? Because God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame that which is wise. See, that's the problem for Sarah and her trust to God that she would laugh at the promise of God, not realize it is when you are weak that he is strong. It is when you are barren that he brings life. 
And it is when you have no ability that God makes a way. And I think a lot of us have no problem seeing God this way, but we have a very difficult time seeing God this way toward us. You see, the reason I struggled in that moment to see the promise of God in my child The reason I struggled when God was calling me here to think, can God really use me at a First Baptist Church besides the fact that I was scared of a First Baptist Church was that I still still am like, I'm a Simpson. I'm not a Flanders. I can never be that. I can never be them. And what I've come to realize is no one really is. And God is not in the business of using those who can fit in and have it all together, but God is willing to take a Bart Simpson and use him for his glory. And I say this not to bring glory to myself, but for you to understand that the condition in which God uses you is not your ability. It's him, and it's his promise. And even if, listen, listen, even if he doesn't do what you think he should do or the way you think he should do it or in the timing he does it or he never does it. In Romans 8, 18, it tells us, if God did not spare his own son, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? If there is any doubt that God is for your good, gospel centrality is how we know it even when it seems like there is nothing that is good. And so I would say this to you this morning. Because I know some of you have been believing this lie for many years. You're thinking, my dad wasn't there. I can't be the man of God. I can't be the husband of God. I can't be the father that God has called me to be. Some of you are thinking, I don't have this woman pouring into my life, this godly mentor who's showing me I can't be this woman. I can't, I can't measure up. Some of you think I'm not as smart as other people around me, so I can't be successful. I can't lead others I don't know a lot about the Bible. I can't memorize scripture easily. I'll never be this leader. And I'm here telling you, trust God for salvation. Trust God for transformation. Trust God for blessing. And you're thinking, you don't know my weaknesses. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I'm struggling with right now. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my heart. And we can debate a lot of that. Now, I'm not saying there isn't work to be done and that a part of what God does in our life is the process he takes us through. But here's what I know. For God to work in your life, all you really need to know is what my son knew. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty The mountains are his. The rivers are his. The stars in the sky are his handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. I wanna invite you into a time of prayer now. If you would, out of respect, just bow your head and close your eyes. I just wanna pray over you. And I would just ask you if you're courageous enough to do this now, if you're in here and you have insecurity and you are struggling and you convince yourself over and over again that you cannot be used by God to get through this 
or really ever, if you just slip up your hand real quick, just pop it up real quick, if that's you. Thank you guys, you can slip them back down. Just wanna pray for you. Pray for you that didn't raise your hand in honesty too. Jesus, I just pray for those right now. God, there is so much about us that gives us reason to doubt. There is so much about our circumstances that gives us reason to doubt. And God, you don't always bring the healing and the delivery the way we wanna see it, the way it makes sense to us. But God, as Justin prayed earlier, you are in us and you are working through us even when we don't see it. And God, may we not believe the lie that our effectiveness and our fruitfulness is tied to what we've done or who we are, but it's tied to you and your promise. And so may we just lean into that, God, being empty vessels. I pray for these brothers and sisters who slipped their hand up. God, they're desperate for you to work. And God, I pray that they would remain desperate for you to work in a way that brings you glory and them just utterly clinging to you as we will in all of eternity. God, I know that there's also those in this room who need to trust in you. God, help them to see how illogical it is to trust in ourselves as finite as we are and how great our life is when it's in the hands of the holy and infinite God who has stepped in and intervened and made us righteous when we had no hope on our own. Jesus, as we move into this time of response and singing, may the words that we sing, the words that we've read, may they resonate deeply in our heart that we believe you are who you are and we believe we are who you say we are and that you can work in and through us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.